Hey there, Duke basketball fans. Welcome to episode 184 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It's the middle of the week, but we are still hard at work for you because there's stuff to talk about. You know, it's kind of funny. We planned this podcast. We're going to recap Miami. Maybe we talk about Zion Williamson. And for most of the game last night, most of Zion's game, I was like, what are we going to say about this? And then Zion went insane and the basketball world exploded. It's the biggest story in sports right now. That dude is just unbelievable. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Before we get to that, I am Jason Evans. I'm hosting this week. I am joined, as always, on this bright, early Thursday morning by my good buddies in Durham, North Carolina, Sam Klein. So, full disclosure, I went to bed at halftime of the Pelicans game and was like, Oh, no. Well, no, no. <laughs> and I said, I said, man, you know, I, I had had a long day. I was like, nothing is happening. Zion's taken, I think he had taken two shots to that point or one shot, and it was it was whatever. So I was like, all right, well, we'll get on tomorrow and talk about how he's still ramping up, but maybe, maybe we need to lower our expectations. And then I woke up this morning and I watched all the highlights and I've got all the commentary and I am, boy, I am excited because that is, I, we'll, we'll get into it. I'm excited yeah. to talk about the Zion thing, but <laughs> I, I will admit that I full, full disclosure, I went to bed. Well, so wait, I want to put, let's put this conversation on pause. Like you said, we're going to get into it. Yes, I yes, think, yes, yes. I think everyone has a story about how they experienced the insane three minutes and eight seconds where Zion Williamson changed the NBA. So Mine was in the dark <laughs> on my phone this morning about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> mine, mine was in bed with my wife saying, can we go to sleep? And me being All right, like, let's, well, let's, watch one let's move on to but Donald anyway, now. Yes. <laughs> Donald White is also with us. Donald in Washington, D.C., uh, don't talk about Zion. <laughs> well, I, I I watched the whole game last night. I will say this. I think Zion listens to the podcast because last year, as you guys recall, a lot of the podcast was basically the Zion basketball report. And he knew we needed some material for this morning. And so last night happened. So we'll talk about it. But thanks, Zion. The, the Zion basketball report, at least for a segment, will return. Oh, and I know, so much Jason. Fun. I know we were. I know we wanted to start with the Miami game, but can we just get Zion out of the way? Yes. Let's, let's yeah. What that. the hell? Let's do it. Let's do that. <laughs> we're already on it. We can't resist it. Yes. So last night, for three minutes and eight seconds, Zion Williamson, like I said, changed the basketball world. He had he had basically looked very tentative. He looked a little overweight. Um, you know, I don't blame him. It's been probably very difficult for him to to stay in basketball shape because he hasn't been allowed to use his knee for a while. Um, but he, he, he was the starter for the new Orleans Pelicans and, uh, and, and things were kind of going, eh, not too great. And then suddenly he scored 17 consecutive points in, in a little more than three minutes of basketball time. Um, he took the Pelicans from being down by double digits and gave them the lead. It was a stunning thing to watch. And the crazy thing about it is it was mostly from the perimeter the, the San Antonio Spurs are playing defense on him, and their defense was, don't let him get to the rim. So they were playing off of him, and Zion kept on shooting three-pointers, and they kept on going in. It was it was crazy, insane. Um, Donald, uh, you, you watched it live the same way I did. G- give, me, give me some thoughts. So I, I think you were right about how this progressed. The first, the, the Pelicans before the game had mentioned that they were doing – uh, they were going to let him start the game, but he was going to be in for what they called short bursts, four to five minutes, and then sit out. And the first couple, you could see he was trying to get his legs under him. He there's obviously every time he caught the ball, the entire crowd was like, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. But he was just trying to get into the flow of the offense of the first quarter. I'm not, I'm not, I'm fine with that. Second quarter, you could see he was getting a little more comfortable. But again, you were like you were saying, they were trying to take away what he's very good at getting to the rim very quickly. He did make a layup, uh, but he didn't take a lot of shots. He was trying to, you know, work the ball around to see if he can get himself into a lot of open positions. And that just wasn't he had some really nice. He had some really nice assists. I mean, I, his yeah. ability to move the ball and find the open man, which we saw last year at Duke was really on display early in the game. Yeah. That hasn't gone anywhere. And I think his court acumen, his vision, that hasn't gone anywhere. You don't have to, really worked that out if you're Zion Williamson. He he got the, into the that flow pretty quickly about moving the ball around, getting to open spaces. In the third quarter, it was, yeah, it was an, another thing where it's very quick, very quick burst. And before you knew it, he was gone. And everyone's like, oh, okay, well, I can just watch the start of fourth quarter and be done with this. In the fourth quarter, he turned something on. And, and that's something 
is the Zion effect. It's something we saw last year. I mean, to score the way he did in the span, it really, you said it was three minutes and eight seconds because they're including that free throw that he made to make it 17 straight points. But in, in earnest, it was 16 points in just over two minutes of basketball, four for four from three. And they were all very good. His, his three, as we know, is very flat. And so the Spurs apparently before the game was like, we're going to let him shoot that three. And he kept making it. And in, the last couple were just heat checks. There was one that he did over LaMarcus Aldridge where he just kind of looked at LaMarcus Aldridge and kind of said, you know what? I'm shooting this. And it, it still went in. For his 4-3. Um, that was his fourth yeah, for his fourth three. three. Yeah, but he had, he had already had the heat check to that point. I mean, not, as you said, none of those threes were contested uh, until maybe Aldridge could have could have come up on him and been like, all right, you you you've made three in a row. Let's let's make he, this a little bit harder. He played some token defense there, like okay, I'll, and I'll he didn't even step really out. do that, right? I uh, think I think Aldridge was worried about being put on a poster in Donald's first game, and he, I'm uh, I'm sorry, in Zion's first game, he, he would if he I was, played too, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and so he was like, look, if he shoots threes, I'm not going to get put on a poster. Um, but one thing that the the he was six <laughs> for eight from the floor. And but I, I'm pretty sure only one miss was, you know, not rebounded by Zion Williamson. The other one was one where he he turned around uh, Jakob Poitel, who has changed his name pronunciation several times since college. Um, and he laid it in and it went off the rim, but he still muscled. Well, uh, yeah, Poitel got, got a piece of it. But yeah. Zion's so much faster than everybody else. I mean, one of the things you noticed about him in the game, I thought, was he's still even at this level an athlete beyond what everyone else is in terms of mm-hmm. his quickness and his explosion. And, and so Poitel blocks the shot and he picks it up before anyone else even realizes where the ball is and puts it in. And yeah, it's back I think in what the was before doing note. What, what was interesting to me in that first, I said, I, I went to bed at halftime, so I didn't see the the second half live. I was, I watched the highlights this morning. What I noticed in the first half, I was disappointed that he wasn't going to score more, but like Donald said, he was clearly, still in the flow of the game. Um, he just he just wasn't hunting his shot, and it was clear that the Pelicans were not designing offense for him. I was surprised, given that their game plan was only to play him for short bursts, that they even bothered to start him. I would think that you know the, the coaching staff of the front office, whoever's really making the decisions, would have wanted to kind of tamp down the excitement if this was their game plan, which – so that was a little strange – it was cool then at the end that they were that the that they at least had to keep you know leaving him into the game because because the uh, the Pelicans kept you know kept moving the ball up. That, that was a funny part in the in the whole progression of Zion's run is that I think there was one play where the where uh, Alvin Gentry, the head coach, had sent a bench player out to replace Zion, and then nobody on the floor called the timeout, so they just kept playing, and Zion got another one of his threes. So clearly, and, clearly and his Gentry, by the way, called it. the guy back. He called him back. Right. He was like, wait, wait. But, but here's yeah, the I thing. I can't take at, him out right now. <laughs> at the end of that, when they went to the TV timeout, he, you know, Zion walks over, runs over, and Alvin Gentry kind of pulls him and was like, okay, now you're done. And you could see Zion was kind of like, but I just scored 17 straight but points. I just, like, yeah, like, I just, how could you take I just, me out at a time like this? Come on. And so and he didn't, and he didn't, cr- it was a minute restriction. He didn't come back the rest of the game. The crowd was going crazy. The crowd was not pleased that he did no, not come not back all. in. But here's the thing. I mean, on that, I, I get it. I think everyone gets it. It's just in the heat of that moment, you're like, let the man continue. Like It's just like it's like pulling a guy in a perfect game in the ninth inning with one out. You're like, let the man. Except like, that he was really he was really like a relief pitcher that had like had like not thrown a ball or, or any had only been throwing swinging strikes for, for four outs. And it's for like four hours. Yeah. And then why, at the right. end of the day, you're like, Hey, like that pitcher will go up to the guy and say, look, let me get this next batter. Right. That's what Zion was doing. And Alvin Gentry, like what a good manager would do is say, Hey, we have you on a plan. Trust the plan. We, I understand, but we got to pull you now. And I think even after this, they're already saying that they're adjusting that, those bursts of minutes that they're going to give him. They're going to adjust that for even the next game. He's not going to play any back-to-backs. Um, he's he's going to be limited in some of those games as we move forward. But, wow, like he somehow created, you know, in 18 minutes a debut that will live for a very long time. 
I think that this is one of the best versions of of his debut because for a little while, like I said, he was he was still ramping up. He was still getting in the flow of the game. He was he was hunting passes for his teammates. He was trying to find rebounds, but he wasn't exerting himself too much. And then right when he had lulled us all into thinking that this was it, he explodes for a little bit. We see the we we see the potential. We didn't even see any dunks, as you guys noted. Right, mostly three pointers. There there was some uh, there. There were some baskets around the rim, but most of what we saw was Zion taking threes and, and being confident about them. And so now today we and everybody else can say, oh, boy, I, I can't wait for the next Zion experience. So and we're the, just going to have to keep watching. And the one thing that spurred this whole spurt that he had in the fourth quarter was a rebound. It was one where he, you know, it was a rebound and he was behind everybody and somehow jumped and over up. everybody and crazy. went up and grabbed it. And that's what led to the first three. And, and you could tell from there when he got that, you know, the entire gym was like, oh, he's. Oh, oh, how about that? It, yeah, that's what we came to see, something like that. And then he, you know, came right back down and that next possession hit that first three. And then where I was like, oh, OK, so we're we're doing this now. That whole progression, if you followed it on Twitter just the the, the not amount of things, including Zion, that was trending was like 15 out of 20. And it was like, oh, my God, Zion. Damn, Zion. Yo, Zion. Zion. Holy every hashtag shit, Zion. had his name in it. Yeah. Everything, yeah. every every trending topic had Zion in it for about an hour and a half uh, after that was done, which is when, the Zion effect. He took over when, the when internet. He, yeah. When, when he hit, I think it was after he hit the third three-pointer or maybe it was on the – on the lob, I forget where it was. Suddenly, my phone started blowing up. <laughs> I it was, the se- it was like, probably the are second three. Every- yeah, at that point, like, are you hit- Yeah, at that point, it was like ten points in a row or something like that. And and you're like, oh, well, this is he really did this. And then those other two were just heat checks. Like the third, yeah, but if like, you weren't if you're leave me this wide open, I'm gonna shoot it. <laughs> if you weren't at your phone for the 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 whole progression took four minutes in real time. Plus yeah. the you know Crazy. plus the free throw a minute later. It, if you if you weren't at your phone at that moment, you weren't going to see it because it it happened in a flash. Yeah, that's that's Zion. Sam, you'd you'd mentioned earlier. Oh, I'm not sure why they started him if they're not going to play him a lot. I think that they want him to get comfortable with those guys. That's going to be the lineup he's going to play with for the most part. He's going to play with the starters, and 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 their priority at this point is getting him to the point where he can play more and where he's really comfortable in an NBA game. I mean, look, look, let's be honest, as exciting, as amazing as that was, I don't think anyone thinks Zion Williamson is going to make his living by hitting a lot of three pointers. That's just, that's, he's not taking, he's not taking twice as many threes as he's taking shots around the rim. Exactly. Exactly. But here's, if, if here's he, the thing. if he is something crazy is going on, here's yeah, the go thing. It, this all just like, he's so smart in doing it. it, it of course it, it it works out that he hit these threes because the next game is against the Nuggets. They have an interior presence. They have Nicholas. They have Plumley, And those guys are going to try and trend out a little bit closer to him on, when he walks out to the perimeter. And what's going to happen? Zion Williamson is going to have a point where he explodes to the rim and he's going to hammer it over somebody that is like, yo, that's not even my man. Why, why am I the poster? And that's going to happen. <laughs> this is all the this is all a long game right. that Zion Williamson has been playing. You're right. It's not. You're right. It's not going to be Mason or Jokic that are going to get on the poster. It's going to be like whoever the backup power forward is, because Paul Millsap mm-hmm. is out for for Denver, who's like yeah. playing help defense and suddenly be like, "What the hell am I trying suddenly, to do?" Oh, right no. now? Suddenly, a flying bulldozer is coming <laughs> in his face, and he's going to look at the bench like this was your fault. Well, yeah. he's he's not going to do it to Plumley because he's a big Duke guy. So Zion right. wouldn't do that to, to one of his he own. Won't do that it's lucky. Me. It's lucky that it's lucky that half the other Duke players in the league play on his team. So he, he can't posterize them <laughs> except in practice. So it, it, it was a ton of fun. It was really cool. And, uh, you know, it just it's such a taste of what's to come. I'll tell you that. So really quick, guys, give me a projection on what you think Zion's going to be over the next couple months. I, I said to someone that once he once he gets comfortable in games, and I think it probably takes a couple weeks, I think he's going to be a top 10 player in the league. Am I crazy? I think oh. a little bit. I'm. I'm. I don't want to project. It's not just. It. It's not the talent. It's also the time on the court. And I don't know if he's going to get to a point by the end of the regular season where he's this good for thirty minutes a game or thirty-five minutes a game. And that's really what you need to be 
one of the very top players. He might be that in stretches, but I imagine that there'll be there'll be nights when other teams just just have better game plans for him. This is only this is only one look we get uh for Zion against a Spurs team that is in a similar position to New Orleans sort of battling for a for a playoff berth in the West. This is not you know, despite Greg Popovich still being there, this is not one of the best teams in the NBA. Uh, they're they're probably an average team across the league. So we'll see nights where where defenses have ways to to counter Zion more effectively than than the Spurs, who really just let him have what he wanted last night. That the the, and, the whole dynamic will will change around him and the and the defensive game planning. And and for most of the night, he wasn't that great. Do- Donald, where are you on this? I I, I think. You know, he's going to – he doesn't – I think Sam's right. He's not going to have the minutes. He's not going to have the games to really become a top-10 player this year. I I think we're talking – if we're talking about him talent-wise in the top-10, yeah, it's cool. But I think as far as, like, production and stuff, he's probably going to be somewhere in the 20 to 25 range. Remember, he's not going to do any back-to-backs. By my count, I think they have, like, five back-to-backs left in the season. So it's five games he's not playing. Uh, and, you know, even in those games before that – He's probably still going to have a minutes restriction. Now, what he can we we've seen what he can do in a short short period of time. If he you know continues that trajectory, maybe they give him more minutes in the games that he plays. But there's, uh, I think right now he's too far beyond you know to become like oh my look back and say he was one of the top ten players in the league even in you know thirty games. I, I think that's a lot to ask of him. And honestly, if we ask that of him. We, we might mess around and he might become the best player in the league. So I want to temper expectations and hope that he <laughs> exceeds those. Um, because right now, if he does what he did last night over the course of the next 30 games, we're going to have a lot of fun watching basketball. I'll tell you the other thing that was encouraging to me, and not, not that I expected this to be any other way, but I was excited to see that Lonzo Ball was enjoying the whole thing last night because, because Lonzo, Lonzo and Brandon Ingram are, are, are kind of the dynamic duo for New Orleans. We know from Ingram's time at Duke that he he's not particularly vocal. He's not he's not, you know, trying to find all the glory or, or anything like that. Lonzo Ball, we just don't know as well because he played on the West Coast and and is less familiar to Duke fans. It was cool that that they were excited for that Lonzo was excited for Zion and hopefully that means that they can make room for him among what's already sort of a crowded uh, offensive situation for New Orleans. The whole team was excited. I mean, you could see that. The, I mean, it wasn't just the fans. When that run was happening, the bench was basically on the court the entire time. Everyone was standing in the building, and I mean, even the coaching staff was standing. So this is something that you know it was exciting for everyone, and you could tell that the players on the team and the staff are excited to have him and get him to be you know part of that group. Once he gets his conditioning down, I mean, yeah, he. He couldn't run for three months, so he's naturally going to be behind the eight ball when it comes to his conditioning. But once that comes back in a, in a few weeks, the sky's the limit for him. It's going to be ridiculous. So, so the last thing I want to say about it really quickly is last night was an inflection point. Up until last night, Zion belonged to Duke. And, and I know that seems sort of weird and strange to say, but like if you noticed in the pregame when they were doing a lot of the, the conversation, oh, he's finally back, he's going to play – Almost all the highlights, there was like one or two little things from preseason, but all the highlights are him with a big D-U-K-E on his chest. And, and, and it stuck out to me. I was like, God, you know, it's like I'm watching a, a, a Duke highlight tape. I'm not watching an NBA guy. This could have been a Blue Planet production. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. And, and, and yet, and now we have the beginning of what the rest of Zion's career is going to be, and he's... Uh, you know, starting now, you're going to see Pelicans highlights, uh, and I'm kind of bummed about that. I was thinking about that while I was watching the pregame highlights, the pregame hype about Zion. I was like, everything I'm watching here is Duke. Everything are, is memories that I have of of the dunk against Clemson and the block against Virginia and all these other kind of amazing things that he did. Uh, and and I'm sort of sad. <laughs> Our Zion has been released. We have to into share him now. Yeah. He's grown now. <laughs> <laughs> Fly away from the nest, little bird. He's Be out. Free. He's out. He's out leading NBA teams in scoring on a nightly basis. He's yeah. oh know, well. <laughs> he's a, he, he's a, he's a real man now. No, this is not a Peter Pan situation.
let's get now to what we're going to start with, which is the Duke basketball team actually played a game uh, uh, this week. They played the Miami Hurricanes, a team that Duke had beaten by more than 30 points uh, just about a, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Um, Duke again wins by exactly 30 this time, 89 to 59. It was a game that was, well, non-competitive. Uh, Jim Laranega, the Miami coach, after the game said that their game plan was to pack in the paint and give Duke threes. And then he said, I guess we did a good job of that because Duke bombed away over Miami, especially Matthew Hurt, um, hit a lot of threes early on. And basically, the, the game was over. Good God, it felt like it was over less than 10 minutes into the game. Uh, Donald, you're you're the big uh, Miami fan among us. Uh, you know, Give us your impressions uh, of, of what we saw from the Blue Devils as they righted the ship quite nicely. Our defense was incredible, um, but I think a lot of it – I'm sorry, I won't say a lot of it. Part of it had to do with the fact that Miami was very injured. They had some guys that were walking dead on the court playing or at least attempting to play. Uh, McGusty was hurt. Chris Likes was hurt, uh, and you could tell that he was frustrated by the fact that he couldn't explode to the rim like he normally could. And, and even on top of that, you had Trey Jones just in his face – the entire night. Jordan Goldwire was in his face the whole night. And so some of these guys that Miami counts on, the three guys that they count on, McGusty, uh, Vasiljevic, and Likes, um, they usually combine for about 50 points a game, and they were off the entire night. I mean, McGusty ended up with 13 points, Vasiljevic ended up with 12, and Likes ended up with nine. But most of that was in the second half when the game was no longer in doubt. Um, so fantastic by our defense to really get back and 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 just hone down on that part on offense like you said our our three point shooting was great and that that helped take Miami out of the game early and and when they attempted to try and mount a comeback of any sort uh the threes would put them back down on their feet so uh, that is those are the two takeaways for me you know Miami being super injured um was something that kind of led this to not be a game early i feel like it the toughness would have come out a little bit later, but uh, I, I, our guys played absolutely tremendous. They did exactly what they did the time before a couple of weeks ago, um, take them out of the game early and keep them down. And uh, they had Miami's number this year. Miami is not a good basketball team right now, but uh, it was because our defense showed up ready to play and our offense showed up ready to shoot from beyond the perimeter. And both of those were executed great. Donald, I'm glad that you started with the defense because I think the easy takeaway from this game is Duke was scorching the the net and couldn't be stopped. We know from watching this Duke team that a barrage of threes is not a is not going to be a repeatable strategy for them. They the various players from the perimeter come in and out. Obviously, this week it was it was Matthew Hurt that was so hot. He he had he had two at the beginning of the game and then and then took a heat check three just to just to see what what was what was going on and he missed it. But I I don't want us to expect Matthew Hurt for twenty points a game as much as I'm gonna not expect any of the perimeter players to go for twenty. I think the defense was the key here. Duke knew that Miami was hobbled and Jones and Goldwire you know, it, it's a different thing when you're playing a Miami team that is that is suffering from injuries rather than a, a Louisville team that's a that's a top 10, 15 team in all of college basketball and has all kinds of weapons. But Jones and Goldwire really turned on the the pressure from the perimeter on Tuesday night against Miami and made it very challenging for the Hurricanes to get any real offense. So they they sort of put the game away early because they had that pressure on. And then in the second half, Coach K, I think, mentioned this after the game that it seemed like the team was was kind of sleepwalking in the second half, but it felt like both teams were sleepwalking. I think just because it was a nine o'clock game, Duke hasn't hasn't had one of those in a little bit, and and everyone in the building was sort of feeling like, all right, all the excitement has been sort of taken out of this. Duke is up by we were we were doubling from, them. It, it yeah, was forty eight. It was forty eight twenty four at halftime. I mean, like it was it was a, it was a twenty to thirty point game for basically the entire game. So. Nothing was happening in the second. Miami wasn't going to come back in the second half. Duke pulled off the gas, uh, and and I think it was probably the right call. They still ended up winning by thirty. They still have these these good highlights to look back on. And then they got to experiment a little bit more with the rotations. The thing that was interesting to me is how in each of these games, 
the rotation changes a little bit, and and we're never quite clear on. Hey, who's hey, hey. The... Do, do not say rotation. Yeah, <laughs> Coach K does not like that word. Excuse me. The you know I it, it, it's curious that I, I think to see how uh, Coach K is managing the various perimeter players and who's starting, who's coming in right after them. Alex O'Connell didn't get in until much later in the game on on Tuesday. I thought that was curious, given that. I, I think I expected him to play more of a prominent role this year. Wendell oh, well, Moore wait, wait. is still out. Let's, let, let, let's talk about Alex O'Connell just really quickly yeah. because Go for it. He, came in, he came in in the first half and almost immediately had kind of a bad turnover, and then he was yanked. <laughs> in the second half, the exact same thing happened again. Now, the turnover yeah. wasn't really his fault. Javin Delorier made, made a tough pass for him to catch, but uh, I, people who were at the game who were friends of mine said that after after that turnover, and again, o- O'Connell has just come back in the game, and almost immediately there's a turnover. Um, it, it, you know, it's probably fifty percent Alex, fifty percent Javin, but there was a timeout, and Coach K apparently, uh, like the building wasn't really loud and raucous because Duke was beating the pants off of them. They come over to the bench, and Coach K like almost immediately goes, "Hold on to the bleeping ball." Um, yeah, catch K the, was. I think he said catch the bleeping ball and like apparently everybody heard it. <laughs> it it was it was a it was a relatively quiet night in Cameron given yeah. like it was it was loud at the beginning there but then everybody just sort of <laughs> lost the excitement because Duke was already winning and what else is going to happen you could hear a lot of coach K on on Tuesday night in the game he his his yelling was uh was clear he wanted the excitement to continue i'd say throughout yeah. the game but- more more i think than many of the fans did yeah, but but my my point was, uh, you know, Alex. If there's a guy who who it feels like has fallen out of the depth, the depth. rotation, whatever we're gonna call it, the bottom of the depth, <laughs> bottom of the depth. Yes, in uh, the pit. I, it, it feels like it's probably Alex O'Connell, which is why I was really glad to see him have that final minute and a half, two minutes where he he, he actually scored in a variety of interesting ways. You know, uh, showed his athleticism. Um, look, he put up eight points in like. God, in like 60, you know, it was Zion-like. Um, <laughs> and, from Zion-like from Alex O'Connell. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I, I'm glad. I hope Hopefully that'll help his confidence because I think a lot of what's going on with him right now is confidence. But, I, I, you know, I, one thing I wanted to highlight, you guys mentioned, you know, the defensive job we did on Chris Likes, and he was clearly injured. Uh, but we've talked a lot lately, Donald and I especially, have talked about cutting the head off the snake. Chris Likes is the head. He had zero points and zero assists in the first half. I mean, the ball game was over because their best player, the guy who creates everything for them, had zero points and zero assists in the first half. That's why Duke was doubling them at halftime. I mean, it's really, it it, it was truly remarkable. And then the other thing I wanted to mention very quickly, last podcast, I talked about, you know, the need for free throws, layups, offensive rebounds, the easy ways to score baskets. I talked about how we'd struggled uh, with that against Clemson. And I said, look, the one thing is you don't need to do those things if you're going to bomb away from the outside and hit all your perimeter shots. Uh, and and it felt for a little while like that's what Duke was doing. Duke was just bombing away and hitting their perimeter shots. But but I was pleased that we we seemed to get back to being a team that, that got some offensive rebounds, not a ton, but we, we got some – some some putbacks. We we definitely were hitting our layups and we hit our free throws. And defense is pretty much always going to be there. We talked about last week was the worst defensive week ever for uh, you know this season for Duke. But but defense is pretty consistent. If we're able to make those other aspects of the game consistent as we did against Miami, um, then we go back to being the best team in the country, which is where we all want us to be. I will say this. You know, one final thing about the defense, they shot as a team 30% from the floor, not from the three-point line or whatever, from the floor. And they only had six assists as a team on their, what is the 18 shots that they made. That is something that before the game, we said that they were a team that doesn't necessarily like to play hero ball, but they like to play iso ball. And when you're not hitting your shots on iso ball, that's how you shoot 30% because no one's there to take the rebound. No one there is, is, is going to pass the ball to you. Once you have the ball, it was everyone else get out of the way and let's see if this person can score. And all night we frustrated the three guys that normally are scoring. That is what a great defensive output is. 
Yeah, now let's, uh, you know, Sam, I'll give you the last word, and I'm going to let you talk about the guy who was the story of the game. With five minutes left in the game, in the first half, Matthew Hurt was outscoring Miami all by himself. He had 15 points and five rebounds at halftime and went on to have probably his best game in a Duke uniform in the second half. He had one point where he, like, dribbled between his legs and did a step-back three that he hit that I was like, ooh, that's a 6'11", that's a 6'10 dude doing that. That's impressive. Uh, Sam, give me, uh, you know, let's sum it all up. Give me give me something on, on the guy who was clearly the player of the game. Well, as you said, Matthew Hurt was getting the the Matthews winning treatment from the Cameron crazies late in the first half, which was pretty cool as, as Duke was really stifling Miami's defense. I think we, we let off here to be like, all right, everybody knows that the offense was great. Let's talk about the defense. I don't want to shortchange Matthew hurt who had arguably his best game in a Duke uniform. The best version of Matthew hurt is what we saw the other night. And this is what, Coach K and the staff were talking about at the beginning of the season that, that Matthew Hurt to them was ACC ready. He was college basketball ready. He was going to step in and make an impact at both ends of the floor. We really saw it on offense on Tuesday where he was confident taking shots. He he didn't hesitate to you know be in the offense. And, and I think that it's been a little bit more of a transition than maybe he even expected here in, in ACC play. I don't expect him to be scoring. As I said, he's not going to get 20 minutes, 20 points a night. But if he's 12, 13, 14, 15, if he's making three or four threes in a night, that's amazing for Duke and is super helpful for stretching the floor. Obviously, Hurt is a big guy, so he has the ability to you know shoot over players in ways that most of our perimeter guys don't have. So if he's not if he's not a banger inside, if he's not getting tons of rebounds, hopefully he is making all these shots and this game should give him the confidence to, to be that productive going forward. Well, I, you know, you talk about the offense. One interesting thing that I want to just quickly mention, cause I'm, I'm going to be intrigued in seeing if we do it more. Duke played a little bit of one, two, two zone last night and the one, two, two zone. The interesting thing about it was they put Matthew hurt at the top of the one, two, two zone. And he, he's got really long arms. And I thought it was an interesting interesting move with them uh, to, to figure out a little bit of a defensive scheme that works really well with Matthew Hurt in the game. Because, uh, you know, most teams go small and, and try and break Duke down off the dribble. That's, that's the way that, you know, that's the way Clemson beat us. And I think that a lot of teams, unless you have the ability to turn us over the way Louisville did, a lot of teams are like, okay, well, you know, what can I duplicate that Clemson or Louisville did to beat Duke? And and what Clemson did seems like something that might be duplicable for a lot of teams. So uh, I think this may have been Coach K's sort of answer, um, a little bit of zone, because you can't really break Matthew Hurt down. And, and a lot of what Clemson was doing, by the way, was against Matthew Hurt um, and, and Vernon Carey to a lesser extent by taking them to the perimeter and then going around them. Um, you can't break a guy down like that if, if you're playing zone. And so I'm going to be real interested in seeing if Coach K does a little bit more of that going forward. We have great perimeter defenders, and you don't want to lose that perimeter defense. Um, but if you're going to get, uh, you know, if, if your bigs are going to be struggling to guard guys on the perimeter, you've got to figure out a way to deal with it. So I, I, I'm I mean, if that's, very intrigued. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's Matthew Hurt playing Lance Thomas's role from back in the day where you've got a 6'8", 6'9", yeah. you know, like, yeah. like, a, like a bigger guy who is is quicker on the wing and can can defend at the point which allowed you know if you remember on that team Lance Thomas was able to take perimeter guys and and put Nolan Smith off on the on the shooters you could see that that working for for Duke and Matthew Hurt the other night where Jones and Goldwire were able to to focus a little bit more on on their players and it puts Jones and Goldwire in the passing lanes where they can, you know, get hands on balls and, uh, you know, makes them even more dangerous defenders than they already are. All right, before we get to Player of the Week and Parting Shots, we have something else we want to talk about, which is there was a fracas uh, in Kansas <laughs> this week. A ruckus? Uh, a, a, a ruckus, yes. A rumble? Uh, what, what, was there a rumble? What, what other 1950s word for a fight can we come up with? Um, there was a fight between Kansas and Kansas State. It happened at the very, very end of the game, literally with no time left on the clock. There was, a, and... there was an unhappy powwow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I'll keep going. You want me to keep going? 
you got another one? Hit, give me one more. One more. Uh, there Bruh. was a there was an oh, unfortunate brouhaha. gathering of the minds. Yeah, there was a brouhaha. <laughs> brouhaha. Donald saves you with the br- brouhaha is the one we've been looking for. I said for there the was an time. unfortunate gathering of the minds. <laughs> there were no minds involved in this. None. Not a single None. one. Yeah. Uh, so th- this was this was a, a big story in in pro sports uh, or in, in in all sports right up until Zion Williamson pushed it off the front page. But in any event, uh, Donald, I know you wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um, give me your impressions of what happened, the fallout from it, and and is there any lasting meaning to this, so to speak? So, I mean, it was ugly um, in the sense that it, it happened, at the, as you said, right at the end of a game uh, between two big rivals in Kansas and Kansas State. It happened in a, in a way that it probably shouldn't have happened, you know, with Kansas State up big. Uh, they were running out the clock. They were just trying to dribble a clock sorry, out. Sorry, sorry. K- Kansas was Kansas, up big. Kansas was I'm up sorry, big. Kansas, Kansas was up big. Yes. yes. And it was um, in it was in fog. It was in uh, Allen. It was at in, in fog Allen. Fog Allen. Yes. Yeah. Um, they were up big, and they were trying to run the clock out. And Kansas State decided that they were going to try and get one last layup. And so, uh, a Kansas State player steals the ball and dribbles to try and lay it in. And uh, Silvio D'Souza, who had the ball said, okay, we're not going to go out like that. And he went up and proceeded to vociferously block the ball into oblivion. No one has still found the ball. I mean, it was that bad. But then he stands over the Kansas State player who had fallen to the ground, has this to say, this is not going to happen ever. And he did it right in front of the Kansas State bench. And at that point, gentlemen, street rules were applied. Uh, It's something that those three things – were the catalyst for uh, this whole thing that happened, really. And uh, it was unfortunate. You know, it, it spilled into the stands. It was a section. This is, it's, you know, people keep referring it to the Mouse of the Palace as a Pistons fan. I take a, you know, I, I kind of resent that because this was not that. These were two different things. This was a, a fight with players that spilled into the stands as opposed to a fight between the players and the fans. Um, but Yo, it, but it, is, still... it is worth noting that the area that this happened in the, th- this is where like the, some of the handicapped seating is and yep. things like that. Mm-hmm. And some of the pictures, uh, you know, are, are terrifying of, of these six, 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 ten huge athletes, you know, brawling, fighting, picking up chairs. Silvio D'Souza picks up a chair that's and, going to be the lasting and, image right there. Yeah. Is him, and at his him feet, with the chair over his head. Yeah. And at his feet is is a woman who clearly does not belong here. Um, mm-hmm. That that's um, that's what the, made the it NC, a little. Yeah. That's what made it a little uglier is the fact that you're you know it's not like any other part of the stands where people just kind of. I mean, let's let's be real. If this happened in Cameron, there'd be nowhere for these guys to go. Right. There'd be so many fans that they would just kind of push them back onto the court. But this was a section where those people couldn't move quickly or at all out of the way. And so they were forced to be a part of this. And and I think that is what made it a little more of an ugly scene is that you had innocent people there that really couldn't get out of the way. And they had to become a part of this whole situation. The, the thing that was, like you said, the, the tough part was, was where the thing was happening. I think what was disappointing is just how much it escalated over nothing. The, the the whole thing was taking place right at the end of the game after the like immediately following the incident the the two head coaches had had already walked to center court to shake hands with each other that's how late it was like the the block happened at regulation it was a 30 point game there was there was no need for any of this to happen and it took a minute or it took us not a whole minute it took a few seconds for all the coaches and everyone to sort of figure out what was going on because you could mistake a lot of the movement over there for just the sort of general post-game shuffling around that, that goes on. Um, so really no need for for this to have happened in the first place or to escalate. I think that I, I'm disappointed that that the Kansas State players, you know, I, I can see players from from smaller conference teams saying, hey, I'm in I'm in Fog Allen Fieldhouse. I, I I'll never get another shot to steal the ball against Kansas. This is this is like the peak of my basketball life. That's not the case for a for for Kansas State. They play Kansas every year at Allen Fieldhouse. They're all Division One players. That, I, I think that's where the, the where the bummer is here. Hey, 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 and actually, an interesting part about this is 
you, you got do you guys remember we talked about in the podcast earlier this year there was a guy for Monmouth I, I forget his name Monmouth was playing Kansas in Allen Fieldhouse and at the very end of the game with Kansas winning big there was a guy for Monmouth who very sneakily like he got down low and he he looked like he was a spy came from behind um, and, 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 and came it, from yeah. behind and and stole the ball and went in and got a layup um and uh, th- there's a there's a feeling out there that one of the reasons Kansas reacted so angrily to this happening to them by Kansas State was that they'd already sort of been the butt of the joke when this guy from Monmouth did this. And 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 this is just, for the most part, this is not done at the end of games. Like, yeah, you play till the whistle, you know, till the final buzzer. But, uh, you know, when a team's winning by 25, 30 points in the final five or 10 seconds and they have the ball and they're just dribbling it out, like going and going after that guy who's not really paying attention who's not trying to score because trying to score would be rude at that point, um, I think is in very, very bad form. It's a it's an unspoken rule in, in basketball. And and so this guy from Monmouth did it, and everybody talked about it and thought it was funny, and, and it was on SportsCenter and all this other stuff. And so here comes a guy from Kansas State doing not quite the same thing, but almost the same thing. And I think that that's one of the things that set the Kansas players off. They were like, we've already been mocked for this once. We're beating the crap out of you, and we're the ones getting mocked. And we're not going to have that happen to us again. So I think that contributed to it. <clears throat> yeah. In, in in the end, you know, there was a lot to take from this, right? You know, you have D'Souza, the, the lasting image is going to be him with a chair over his head that he was trying to, you know, at least at that point, intending to use as a weapon or at least to defend himself against the slew of Kansas State players that were coming, trying to come at him. Uh, it was a Kansas State assistant coach that kind of ripped it out of his hands as he dropped it. Um, you had, you know, player, you had fans in the stands that were just kind of, you know, hit, trying to separate people tap guys on the head um uh, kind of like playing one one was playing patty cake for some reason in, in the video but also you have the mascot the jayhawk is in the corner with his hands over his eyes just kind of that's shaking so his head. funny uh just oh my like god there's so much to take away from this but really the last thing the last thing effective is this you know in the aftermath the immediate aftermath i mean there was a point where lafonso ellis on ESPN was saying, I really want to talk about how Duke, how great Duke played tonight, but I can't because Kansas State and, and Kansas got into this fight. And we have to talk about that. It, it, it's one of those things where the immediate aftermath and the immediate response was for people to say, kick everybody off the team, kick every, the Sousa should never play college basketball again. And, you know, all these guys Crazy. that played, you know, should be, should be done with college basketball. It's a privilege, not a right, yada, yada, yada. I mean, we have the, the, they suspended him indefinitely, and finally they came out with actual suspensions. Right. Sylvia Sousa got, got 12, he got got 12, 12 games. games. And I should point out that Kansas and Kansas State play again in 11 games. So yes, and I think 12, that's why he got was very intentional. James Love the third, the guy that was not playing in the game, that ran off the bench to, to, to start really escalate the fight, um, he got eight games. Those are the two biggest Which, by ones. The way, by the way, it's complete BS because James Love, it, he's redshirting. Like, oh, we're suspend. You're not allowed to play when you're not playing anyway. I mean, I don't know what what you can do to the guy. Uh, um, that, well, that suspension would be he can't be on the bench. Oh, 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 wow. Okay, you've you got him now, boy. You really showed him. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not a it's it's. But here's the thing, like, I, I don't know what you do. I mean, he's he's a right. scrub anyway. He's not someone who plays meaningful minutes for them. Um, I think he was even a walk on who's been given a scholarship. I think I read something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I, you know. I, I, I don't have the magical answer. I just know that suspending a guy who wasn't playing anyway, to me, doesn't do anything. And if there is – look, Silvio D'Souza, the moment he picks up that chair, he becomes the big bad guy. I get that. And mm-hmm. he's got some serious issues. And I'm not sure what his future is at Kansas, even beyond these 12 games. Well, remember, he's but, the guy He's but, the guy uh, well, that was the center know, of he's, this. He was Kendall. Right. I know. I know. He, he, he has a complicated history at Kansas. Let's just put it <laughs> that way. Um, but – the guy who elevated everything, the guy who's the real cause of this is, is James Love. And, and, and the reason is because, remember, he wasn't in uniform. Um, he, he was, you know, he had like on track pants and a black shirt because he's, he's not playing right now. Um, and, and as a result, when he comes flying at Silvio D'Souza, um, D'Souza doesn't know. It's not another basketball player. D'Souza just sees some random dude coming after him. And I think that's what took it from a 
basketball fight into something that suddenly involved fans and things like that. Uh, and, and again, I don't know what you do with James Love and, and how you police this and change it. But that to me is where this escalated to something that we are having to talk about. You know, the James Love suspension is like a pitcher that gets into a fight. And they suspend him for five games of which he was only going to pitch one of them. That's what the James Love suspension is about. But to, to basically summarize it, the, you know, the fact that people were trying to talk about these guys being kicked out of college basketball for this incident, I think is just kind of ridiculous in the sense that these guys are, are kids. I mean, they're 18, 19, 20 year old kids. When I was 18 years old, if a fight happened like that in Cameron, I guarantee you I would have been in the stands throwing bows. Because as an 18-year-old, that's what I would be doing. Now I'm much older. I would not be doing that. But I've told you guys, guys I've told you guys yeah. about the time I wanted to fight the NC State Wolfpack players. Yeah. Who were if, dancing if, on the if on that fight had spilled into yeah. stands in Cameron, it would have been on. It would have been we would have had a had the black eye that Kansas has today. But I, I think you know, Jay Williams really said it best. He said, we put people in college basketball so they can learn to become men, learn to become women, learn to become adults. This is part of that learning process. And yes, they're going to have to sit out and learn that, learn that lesson and sit on the bench or, or not on the bench, whatever, whatever that suspension entails. And they're going to have to do the right things to get back onto the team because yes, college basketball is a privilege and they have abused that privilege by fighting, but they are learning a lesson, and that's where, you know, I think cancel culture kind of came in, you know, with their pitchforks ready to go, and they shouldn't have because in the end, this wasn't the malice in the palace. This wasn't even the biggest fight that I've ever seen in, in sports. There's been a lot of people who almost died in, in fights um, in other sports. You're a so, soccer fan, man. You know it. <laughs> I, exactly. Um, this ain't – we ain't touching the tip of the iceberg with this one. But I do think at the end of the day, these guys are just kids and, you know, they made terrible mistakes. But I'm glad that they are getting the opportunity through suspension to learn from those mistakes. Sam, go ahead. I just wanted to come back to your note about the Jayhawk mascot. Now I now I can't remember his name, but the the Kansas Jayhawk mascot who was covering up his eyes, his his mascot eyes as the whole thing was going on. I'll toss you back to uh, one of the. <laughs> like a funny memory of mine when I was trying out to be the Duke blue devil, this was back in the fall of 2007. One of the things they had us do is act out scenarios that are more absurd than this one. So one of the things is when you're in the mascot suit, you have to, you have to remain in character. So they said, all right, put on the, this was back when the, when the Duke mascot head. had the, had the big head, big the, head. Big like head. similar big to the, head. Similar to the uh, similar to the Kansas Jayhawk mascot who's got that sort of giant cartoon head. So I put on the big head and I had the the shoulder pads that the mascot used to wear under the under the his suit um, to make him look big. So I'm wearing the head and the shoulder pads just for to see if I could do these motions in you know with with sort of the complicated clothing on. And they said, "All right, you're at a um, you're at a." Let's see. The first scenario was you're at the funeral of a member of the Duke Board of Trustees. What do you do? So oh I was like, God. I was like, how is that? I was like, how is that funny? So I why would stood, the mascot be there? Oh my God! Unclear That's your scenario. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, that was one of them. So, so for that one, I like I I, I stood there and I kind of I, I was like standing silently or he's always silent, but I was standing there like motionless, just like respectfully for a couple seconds, and then I started scratching my butt. Um. So I think I. <laughs> I, I think I nailed that one. And then the other one that I remember doing was um, you're you're on the beach, you're you're laying down on the beach and you just realize that you're naked. And I had to uh, to sort of mime out like what would happen realizing as a you know, as a as a cartoon character, what happens when you're naked. So uh, respect to or staying in character and doing his job and not running away or getting involved or, or whatever sort of weirdness he might have he might have done in that scenario so props to him good job yeah and and he and he was a safe distance uh whoever was under that he or she was a that's safe, right a that's good, right safe mascots, they the, the mascot might look tough but but they are not in a they are not in a scenario they are not in a situation to join the fight in any meaningful way so best to no, stay out of it no he was it was very very far away from the scenario and i think that's kind of what made it so funny is because you know just like big head was back in the day big head had a permanent smile so if there was something bad That's going right. on duke blue devil was just shaking his head and smiling no frowns uh, no frowns no, no frowns, frowns behind no frowns big head. Duke. 
got, and there was no frown on the Jayhawk even when that ruckus was going on. Guys, we got to do player of the week time. I think I think we all know who the player of the week is. Cameron does. Matthew Hurt. Yeah, I, I think you got to give it to Matthew Hurt. I was going to make a case for for Goldwire or Jones on defense, but but for for this one, it's got to be Hurt. And so that's going to move us on from player. And I agree, it's Matthew Hurt. We don't need to talk about this. Uh, let's let's get on to parting shots. And Donald, I know you've got an important one. I do, uh, and, and it's a it's a melancholy one. A happy a melancholy happy trails, as Tony Kornheiser would say, uh, to Morgan Wooten, who uh, was the head coach at the Matthew Catholic High School in Hyattsville, Maryland, right here in the D.C. area. He passed away on Tuesday. He was 88 years old. Um, if you don't know who Morgan Wooten is, you don't watch college basketball or high school basketball or any basketball because he is quite easily one of the greatest high school basketball coaches ever. And he's probably one of the greatest coaches ever. Um, he coached at the Matha uh, from 1956 until 2002. He had 1,274 wins, five national high school championships, and 55 Washington, D.C. area championships. Guy, he was actually born in Durham, but was a product of the D.C. area, grew up here, attended high school and college here before he just started at the Matha as a history teacher and then ultimately as the basketball coach in 1956. At points in his career, he received offers from Duke, Wake Forest, Virginia, Georgetown, and American to become their head coach. But throughout that entire time, he decided that his place was at the Matha High School, and he stayed there. He had over a dozen players go to the NBA in his career, including Duke Stanley Ferry and Mike Bray, who coached at Duke. He was one of the founders of the McDonald's All-American Game, and the Player of the Year Award is named after him from that game. He turned to Matha from a nothing high school into one of the greatest powerhouses in the history of American high school basketball. And he really transcended the game. He was bigger than DC. He was bigger than Maryland. He was bigger than really it's points. He was bigger than basketball. He was a national coach regarded, you know, among the likes of John Wooden and our very own Mike Krzyzewski. So uh, the wizard of Washington, Morgan Wooden, one of the greatest basketball coaches in the sports history. He passed away on Tuesday at age 88. Sir, rest in peace, and thank you for your contributions to the game of basketball, not just here in D.C., but around the country. So I'll say this about Morgan Wooten. There's a quote of his that I think is one of the greatest coaching quotes you'll ever read. He said, people will ask me all the time, did you have a good year? And I always tell them, it's too early to tell. Ask me in 20 years when I know how the players turned out. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that is a coach. That is someone who recognizes that his job is not to win games. His job is to sculpt human beings, to, to turn children into good men. Uh, what, what, a, what a remarkable, amazing guy he is. And, and I just want to add to some of the stuff that Donald mentioned. You know, Morgan Wooten became a legend because of the game that his team, that DeMatha played against Power Memorial in 1965. Power was playing... Power had a, a guy named Lou Alcindor who would go on to become named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Power had won 71 consecutive high school games, and it was widely considered that they were unbeatable. And DeMatha managed to beat them because Morgan Wooten trained his team for the game by having his post players play with tennis rackets to simulate Alcindor's ability to block shots and, and, and to teach his team what they needed to do to get off shots against someone as big as Lou Alcindor. Um, Morgan Wooten was an absolute genius of strategy. There are, there are people who say he is the first coach to really invent full court press. Um, uh, he, he was the first coach. Imagine this. He's credited with inventing the charging foul. He was the first guy who told players, stand in front of someone who's running toward you, and when they run into you, it will be a foul. Can you imagine telling your players if they'd never seen that before? Hey, that guy who's coming down the lane, just stand in front of him. Don't try and block his shot or anything like that. Don't try and, you know, just stand in front of him. And when he runs into you, you will get to shoot free throws. Because back then, the, 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 like the charging foul didn't exist as something that was just, uh, you know, an offensive foul where the where you just got possession. Back then, a foul like that, you got to shoot free throws. And so his teams would take charges and they would get to shoot free throws from, 
uh, you know, as a result of the charging foul. I mean, this is a guy who absolutely changed the game. But I want to really quickly, uh, there's a good friend of mine named Alan Murray, who's been a Duke fan for many, many years there. He's been someone on the DBR boards and stuff like that. And he told a story the other day when Morgan Wooten died. And I just wanted to, to tell our audience a little bit about it. Alan told me I could impart this. He's, uh, Alan grew up in College Park, Maryland, and um, very close to where DeMatha High School was located. And he really wanted, Alan and his family really wanted to go to Morgan Wooten's basketball camp, which was a huge deal at the time. But uh, Alan's parents couldn't really afford it. Um, so uh, they, uh, they approached Coach Wooten and, and asked him, you know, if they could pay partially or something like that. And he said, forget it. The fees waived. Come to the camp. Don't worry about it. But Alan's mother, um, ha you know, was working um, – uh, I guess she was a receptionist, Alan said, in a doctor's office. Um, and she she didn't have time to drive Alan to to the camp. Uh, and they were trying to figure out what to do. And Coach Wooten heard about this and he said, don't worry about it. I'll pick Alan up every day and take him to camp with me. So each morning, Alan would, um, he would go to to work with his mother. And then Coach Wooten would come by and pick him up at her office and drive Alan to camp. And then she would pick him up in the afternoon. But that's the kind of, I, I was just like, my God. I mean, because Morgan Wooten was already a legend at that point. And here he was taking the time for, and Allen wasn't a great basketball player. It wasn't like, you know, Morgan was looking at him going, hey, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to recruit this guy. This guy's going to become a stud on my team or something like that. Coach Wooten said, here, here, here's a, a nice guy from a nice family who can't afford and can't get to my camp, but I want to impact his life. So I'm going to, I'm going to, wave the fee and drive him myself. He, he was a great human being. The world is a poorer place for not having Morgan Wooten in it any longer. That's uh that's an incredible story, Jason. I, I think one other thing just to add to the number of accolades that he did, he is the first coach to really get around the high school budget and make his team a national team. And he did that by doing something that a lot of teams don't do. He took his show on the road. And, you know, I mean, DeMatha at that point, I mean, their tuition was like $900. It's, it's, I think it's up to like five or $5,000, which is very low considering some of the high schools here in D.C., the private ones, are in the forty to 50000 range. They're like colleges. And because he didn't have a budget, what he did was he said, okay, to save on our, on our, collar, on our basketball budget, I'll just take our games for the important games – I'll have those guys go on the road. But this other school was made, it was required, if they wanted to see DeMatha basketball, they were required to pay the travel expenses. So it saved DeMatha a lot of money over the years because his program became a powerhouse to the point where everyone wanted to play him. And he said, okay, you guys can do that, but you guys got to pay for us to come. It, it's really the, the, you know, now that we see college football teams, pay for cupcakes to come and they pay their travel expenses and pay all this money to have them show up. The method was doing that. One of the greatest high school programs was making people pay to see them play. That is uh, something that has really changed the game. And, and really it saved the math because at a certain point, the math was going to close because they couldn't meet the ends. And he helped them meet very, very quickly with his basketball program. Sam, it's your turn to give us a parting shot. Uh, I, I, I feel for you having to follow up with with that tribute to to a giant in the basketball world, but go for it. I'll I'll talk about another giant in the basketball world who thankfully is still with us and and probably will be for a long time, and that's uh, the Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey. I don't know. I assume that during the Duke game on Tuesday night, I was I was at the game, so I didn't see the telecast, but I assume that during the game they pointed out that Daryl Morey was in the stands. He was sitting right behind Kenny Denard, uh, right near the the Duke bench. Daryl Morey was in town to uh, speak to my classmates and I. Uh, he was he was doing a speaking engagement at Fuqua at the business school where he sort of introduced the the beginning of the of his journey as the as a member of the Rockets uh, front office and then becoming the general manager and sort of how he pioneered analytics in basketball and showed us uh, he showed us a number of, of interesting charts. But I think the coolest thing that he showed us was. In the fine or in the playoffs, when when the Rockets were playing the Lakers in 2009, the Lakers had that had that awesome team with Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum and Lamar Odom. He showed us this neat chart that they used, where they 
where they looked at the frequency of different types of offensive finishes for the Lakers. So for example, like a, a Kobe Bryant drive or a Kobe Bryant pull up two or a Kobe Bryant three and for all the players, how frequently they happened and how efficient they were. And they designed how they designed their, their defensive game plan around this. It seems nowadays like this is sort of, you know, elementary and that of course teams are doing this, but back 10 years ago, this was revolutionary stuff. So he was sort of walking through that process with us. And it was, it was a really neat time. Got to, got to hear some, some good nuggets from Daryl Morey. And he did say that he would like more, more Duke alums in his front office and, and on his basketball team. So uh, that, that was nice to hear. And uh, so, so shout out to Daryl Morey for, for giving a good presentation here at Duke. I know, I know a guy who uh, would fit that mold, who played, I think he played for the Rockets um, and was a Duke, alum uh is right on to me he's a friend of the podcast can't remember can't remember, can't remember his name you know? but he that guy he'd be good for that more talked at length about shane battier in this and and, and that's who it is know, shane battier my man shane he battier. mentioned he said he said the best thing about shane battier is that shane battier was like even even today with with the all the access to data that players have and, and the familiarity they have with it he said that shane was the best at like receiving a game plan and just saying all right i'll digest this and i'll and i'll go for it he said no one no one follows instructions <laughs> like shane <laughs> uh so uh so somehow i will follow up that really cool really fun parting shot um with something not related to basketball i i just wanted to you know we were talking about morgan wooten and it made me think uh, you know, people sometimes say that um sad deaths like this famous deaths happened in threes we got the second one. If Morgan Wooten was the first, the second one this week was Terry Jones of uh, of Monty Python. Um, a, a true comedic genius um, uh, ha, has left us. Uh, Terry Jones. If you've seen Monty Python movies or TV shows and such, Terry Jones was the one who like almost always played the uh, the the English woman, the old the woman. old woman. Yes, that was his that was his major character that he would do a lot of the time. Um, uh, he, he was. He was the director on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which, uh, you know, arguably perhaps the, the funniest film of all time. Um, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of, of John Cleese and Michael Palin to some extent as, as the, the major folks that they remember from Monty Python. But, but T Terry Jones is, is credited with a lot of the genius behind what that, what that show was. He was the one who came up with the idea of the very surreal, strange structure that Monty Python's Flying Circus took, jumping from, you know, randomly from scene to scene. He, he was someone who was always thinking outside the box. And, and as I was reading a little bit about him and, and, you know, mourning his loss, I found out, do you know, you know, one of the reasons that Monty Python did Holy Grail was because Terry Jones was a medieval, uh, a medieval historian. Like he knew more about medieval history than than many professors out there. He'd written books on it, uh, and and uh, and he he like was took part in in documentaries about medieval European history. Um, I had no idea about that uh, of that about him. It, he's a, a truly remarkable, amazing human being, someone who brought a smile to the face of the world, and and that's just a rare thing. And a wonderful thing. And uh, like I said, Morgan Wooten, we are a lesser place for not having him. We're a lesser place for not having Terry Jones anymore. I will add to that, Jason. I, I saw the the same news and and was a little sad by it, although like like Morgan Wooten, of course, Terry Jones lived a long and very successful life. So we can only be we can only be so sad for someone who who sort of gave us an entire career true, of, true, of achievements. Sure, of course. I yeah. was in in high school. I was in a one act play where we just did a series. We we basically did a an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus, but it was a series of sketches that our that our director had sort of picked out and we restitched them together in the in the Python style where we where we just had these these abrupt transitions between scenes or like someone would be playing a part and then they'd switch to another one. The only one of Terry Jones's characters I specifically recall playing was the man with three buttocks. Which is uh, which is a great sketch. So uh, uh, take take some time and and dig into the Monty Python archives. A lot of it is on YouTube uh, or otherwise. Of course, you can probably find it somewhere on the on the internet. Uh, but but the that that television program was was one of the best. And and by the way, I am far too young to have to have watched any of this when it was coming out. So I am a I am a fan <laughs> way after the fact. Yeah, and uh, and and love the As work. We of all Terry are. Jones. Yeah, it was yes. ahead of its time. It really was. Like just the. the 
the jokes that they had. It's you know, still good. Delivery. It's still. Oh, it still hysterical. holds up. Yeah. It's still uh, good. Yeah. Monty Python and in the Holy Grail is just like, it's an all time classic, and it's and it always will be because I mean, even if you watched it today for the first time, you'd be like, it, it, it makes you think, and all of a sudden you're like, holy it, crap, that was funny. It's, like, it's so it's, funny. It's outstanding. Just uh, watch the credits. Just yeah. watch the opening. Just the, cred- the opening that's right. credits are amazing. Yeah, that's right. Job well done, sir. So that's going to do it for us here on episode 184 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast, a special midweek episode. Uh, get used to it. We may be doing a little bit more of these because as the season moves along, the it gets to be more and more exciting. The games are more and more important. And so we'll be getting in here and, and giving you midweek podcasts here and there. We will be back again this weekend. I want to thank Donald and Sam for joining me as always. I want to, as always, thank our sponsor, Bird Campbell. Um, you can reach out to them online at B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P. B-E-L-L.com. Bert Campbell means business. I am Jason Evans. Thanks again. And it is time for the wonderful Duke band to take us home. Take us home.